I want to read just a single verse uh, out of, it's actually the last verse of John 16. Almost the very last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples before uh, they, they went to Gethsemane. And these are infallible words to his church in all ages. Although he spoke them directly to the twelve, he speaks them through his spirit even now to us this morning. These things I have spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words of your Son. We thank you for sending him into the world to accomplish that great work which we were in dire need of. We thank you for raising him then from the dead and setting him at your own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world that is to come. And our Lord Jesus, we thank you then from this exalted place for sending your spirit into the hearts of every one of those who believe on your name and who call upon you. And in fact, it's your spirit that causes us to believe in your name and to call upon you. We thank you for these great things. We thank you for coming forth, as it were, by your spirit, Lord Jesus, to call unto yourself and to gather every single one whom the Father has given unto you, among whom we thankfully count ourselves, who believe on your name. Be with us this hour. Be with us in the next hour. We thank you for this, your day, in which you entered into your rest so truly, which you accomplished in this world, and which you call us to enter into as well. Not in the first place into our rest, but into your rest, even in this world. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen. The next two weeks, uh, we are going to watch the teaching videos, the, the Ligonier teaching videos on, I think, the providence of God is what we've been going through, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And then, so three weeks from this morning, I'll be back. Sue and I are going to be gone up north into Pennsylvania for the next two Sundays. And then we'll be back. And then after that, uh, we will just have three more weeks to go. I know it's becoming interminable. I apologize for that. But we'll have three more weeks uh, beginning on the 26th of this month of June. So the 26th and then the first two Sundays, Lord willing, in July. And then that will finish off the class on the Great Awakening which class this is. So last week, we looked at Whitfield's ascent up from the south in the southern colonies up to Northampton and his time with the Edwards and uh, his preaching there. We looked at his discussions with Edwards about some dubious matters, and we'll return to some of those things even as, as soon as this morning. And then uh, Whitfield's departure and his return back to England. And then, but before he left, remember he he met with Tennant in New Brunswick, Gilbert Tennant, and uh, placed this request before him that he would go 
and preach in all of the churches that Whitfield himself had preached in to follow up in kind of an apostolic manner. I mean, this is, you, you see this in the book of Acts as well with Paul revisiting all the churches that he had first gone to and sown seeds. So Tennant did this, and with wonderful gospel success, uh, we didn't, we didn't uh, do anything but really touch the fringes of it. There's so much more to look into. And again, I, I warmly recommend that, that 19th century book to you, which is in print today through the banner, uh, The Great Awakening by Joseph Tracy which is just full of uh, the, the, the narratives that we're going through in this class and many, many, many more. Uh, it was not just an isolated incident here and there. I mean, there, there truly was a, a deluge, uh, to use a worldly analogy, uh, of the work of the Spirit in the Great Awakening. That's why it's called the Great Awakening. So let's pick up uh, where we left off because we didn't quite finish last week. Uh, Tennant was coming back south from uh, Northampton. He was coming through Connecticut. And in Connecticut, he stopped at a little town called Lyme in, in Connecticut. Lyme, L-Y-M-E. And the pastor here was a man named Jonathan Parsons. Uh, he's not so well known as Tennant and Whitfield and Edwards, but he was a, he was a major figure in the Great Awakening. In fact, as we'll see in the last week, it was at his home in Massachusetts uh, that, well, here he's in Connecticut, but he's going to move and take up a new pastorate in several years from now in Massachusetts. And it was there in his home in in Newburyport, Massachusetts, that Whitfield actually uh, gave his last address to anyone uh, from the steps in Jonathan Parsons' house and died that night. And we will look at that in the last week, uh, Whitfield's death, which is very touching. So Jonathan Parsons was the pastor here. He was installed a decade earlier. So we're in 1741 now. Uh, So in 1731, he was installed in the pastorate there in Lyme. And at the time, he was a convinced Arminian. So we've talked a lot about Arminianism in this class and how the, the... uh, the essence of the, the preaching of the Great Awakening was strongly, acutely, very powerfully Calvinistic. And Arminianism was seen as, as, a, as a solvent to the work of God in this world. And so Arminianism, by and large, was, was, was the great nemesis, doctrinally speaking, of the doctrines of grace that were being preached so wonderfully in the Great Awakening. So Parsons was, a, was an Arminian and a strong Arminian. He, he says of himself that his hopes at this time, when he was installed in 1731, were built upon the sandy foundation of my own righteousness. And so when any came under conviction of sin through his, his preaching, which, which they did, uh, he would counsel them uh, in the way that Tennant talked about unconverted ministers. That is, he would daub them with untempered mortar. That is advise them to do this or that and mix their own duties in with the ground of justification, which is Christ's obedience alone. He would advise them otherwise and get themselves involved in in the work in a way that is unscriptural and unwarranted. Uh, The fact was, as Parsons admitted later on, that that he himself was one of those unconverted ministers that were, were precisely those that Tennant had been talking about in his sermon, The Dangers of an Unconverted Ministry. So here was Parsons uh, preaching week after week, very faithfully, 
but an unconverted minister in the pulpit. Well, soon he himself came to be wrought upon by the Spirit, and he came under deep conviction of sin. Uh, He says, I found myself naked before the justice of God. Uh, He saw how polluted his own works were, how how polluted his works were with self-interested motives. This is something that the Spirit begins to reveal to us. We think we're going along fine, we're doing these things, we're, we're having a sense of maybe, uh, again to use an earthly analogy, kind of climbing the ladder, the rungs of the ladder upward to, to gain God's approval in some way. Even if formally we reject that kind of thinking, instinctively that's how we're wired. That's naturally how the natural mind thinks. It's like, oh, God must be more pleased with me today than he was yesterday because I've prayed a little more today, or I've denied myself a little more today. Uh, which is all fine and good, but when that is mixed, again, like untempered mortars, that, when that's mixed with the foundation of your acceptance with God in the very first place, and you've shifted it off from the obedience, pure and simple and fully and sufficiently, of Christ himself, then, then you're... I mean, you're wading in the waters of another gospel is what you are doing and there's no peace in that at all no peace whatsoever well this was Parsons condition found myself naked before the justice of God and the discovery he said was so striking that he thought everyone that saw him could see right through him he said everyone that saw me I thought must see my wretchedness that's how he, fe- he felt and that's often how how when a, when a man comes under conviction of sin, he feels like everybody sees him. You, you, you may have experienced this. Uh, it's a very experimental fact that this is how men feel. Well, he continued in this condition, uh, struggling uh, to find peace in his own works, and yet becoming convinced that there was nothing in his own works that could gain God's favor. Until one morning, he says at home, he was leaving his study to go and begin family worship with his wife and children. And at that point, he says, as I, was, as I was going to begin this, my struggles were all hushed in a moment. I saw the justice of God, not against himself, uh, which is what he had been feeling, but fully satisfied in Christ and how he, that is how Christ, could save the chief of sinners. So he, he, he had this... this uh, uh, New apprehension, to use the words of Jonathan Edwards, this new apprehension of Jesus Christ and his sufficiency. And it was suddenly, it was, it was wrought in his heart by the Spirit. And his Arminian principles, he said, just lost their power. There was nothing to them, suddenly. He, he became a Calvinist, as it were, the moment that he saw the justice of God fully satisfied in the death and the propitiation of Christ. He says now... I turned quite about in the most important doctrines of the Christian religion. Uh, Namely, like like Paul says, not of him that willeth or him that runneth, but of him that showeth mercy. I mean, suddenly God became the center of all of his theology. So his preaching, too, now turned quite about. And he began preaching earnestly the doctrines of grace. Uh, His congregation was immediately stirred up against him. They had been satisfied with what they had been hearing. And suddenly now, here's a man earnestly on fire uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're becoming offended because he's preaching closely, again, in that style of the old Puritans, of Thomas Hooker and John Flavel and so forth. And the way, in fact, that that Whitfield and Tennant 
and Edwards were preaching. Now Parsons became one of them. And uh, his congregation was very upset. Uh, very much, if you remember, like Freelinghausen in Raritan, how his congregation was stirred up against him, and they even locked him out of the doors of his own churches. He had four churches. Two of them locked their doors as he traveled around. He couldn't even get in. Well, this was very much the scenario that we find with Parsons at his church in Lyme, Connecticut at this time. Well, unlike Freelinghausen, who we have great cause to admire, uh, unlike Freelinghausen, Parsons gave in to the pressure, uh, the fear of man. It's, it's in every one of us, and it's exhibited here in Jonathan Parsons at this time. And as a result, he says, I was awfully deserted of God and got into a very dull legal frame myself, and then some were better pleased. So he basically retreated from his position, which was a bold preaching of the gospel that he himself had discovered, and uh, gave in to the pressure of the people, and now everybody was happy except for him. He was he was he was very unsettled on the inside, and 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 descended into a carnal frame, as he put it. Well, this state continued for several years, in fact, in this church in Lyme. Several years until the fall of 1740, when news came uh, that Whitfield was going to be preaching at New Haven, which wasn't very far in Connecticut, it's in the same small state of Connecticut. So. Parsons was enthused. He thought, I've got to go here. That, that great preacher of the gospel preached. So he made the trip to New Haven, which is where Yale College is. And Yale, we're going to, in several minutes, we're going to, to transfer over to Yale for a little while and look at events there. But at this time, Whitfield was there preaching. This was just after, in fact, you remember Whitfield left Northampton. When he left Northampton, Yale was one of the places that he went to and preached. So now Parsons is going to Yale to hear, hear Whitfield. And he went, and he came back quickened and revived. His, his, his faith was restored. And so he began, again, preaching the doctrines of grace with, with great power, with great vigor. Even as we went into the winter, uh, as they, we, we, we weren't there, as they went into the... The, uh, that dreadful winter of 1740-41 in which Tennant was preaching in New England and particularly in Boston. During that time now, Parsons was revived and he was preaching very, very much in the, in the vein of Whitfield and, and, and Tennant and Edwards and Freelinghausen, for that matter. With much contention, the people again began to get upset and, and complain, you know, that he was, he was out of bounds. He was preaching in an unwarranted way. Uh, but he continued for several months. Then in April, so April now of 1741, Tennant arrived and he preached. That's where, that's where we left off last week with Tennant coming to Lyme and preaching. So now we've kind of gotten the background, the, the previous decade with Parsons and the church at Lyme. So now Tennant arrived, he preached, he departed, the people were angry at the preaching, uh, but then in the next several days, people began coming to Parsons and making confession of sin. They were coming under conviction, much like that man in Samuel Blair's church, if you remember, that heard an awakening sermon, didn't think anything of it, went out into his garden the next day and was weeding and suddenly the words from the text that he was preaching out of cut it down why cumbereth it the ground remember how that the spirit just brought that home to his conscience this is what was happening now in line and so his his congregation many of them were rushing to see him 
And many confessed, he says, that though they had a name to live, they were dead. That they never knew what real union with Christ was. They were strangers to sensible communion with the Father and His Son, Jesus. And so now Parsons was busy, morning and night. He was preaching, he was counseling. But he says, God was pleased to give me unusual freedom. This is what we find over and over again. Remember Thomas Prince, when people came rushing to him and other pastors after Tennant left. How God enlarged their hearts. And they were able to accomplish three, four times the amount of work that they could before. God was pleased, says Parsons, to give me unusual freedom. My heart burned with love for them. I had constant supplies flowing into my mind. I do not remember that I preached a sermon during this time without some manifest token of the presence of God. So this went on now, this, this state of things. Uh, all through the summer of 1741 into the fall. The number, he says, was daily increasing of those now filled with great joy and comfort. And we had some special seasons of divine influence at that time. Some special seasons of divine influence at that time. Uh, And then he says this, but now I cannot pass over our Pentecost. Now I cannot pass over our Pentecost on the 11th day of October. It was a communion Sunday, and the text that he chose was out of Psalm 2. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. He preached the sermon when when it was over. He came down from the pulpit to the communion table and offered a few words, very much like we have here every week on Sunday morning. Coming down from the pulpit to the table uh, and joining the people with the Lord himself in his supper. A wonderful moment. He says he offered a few words concerning, and I mentioned this last week, the mediatorial excellencies and love of Jesus Christ and invited them to come to him as well as his table. And then he says this, this was in your handout last week, Uh, a little bit abridged. Uh, Several cried out at this time of their piercing of the Lord Jesus by their unbelief. So there were still many under conviction of sin, even believers that are are becoming aware how little faith they have in the greatness and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. While many more, he says, put on immortality almost in the look of their faces, I could not but think that the Lord Jesus was come to his table and feasting their souls with his love, discovering his mediatorial glories to them. It looked to me like a resemblance of heaven where the hosts of angels and glorified saints are forever before the throne, crying, Holy, Holy, Holy. Many old Christians told me that they had never before seen so much of the glory of the Lord or of the power of the gospel. Several had full assurance who had been seeking for many years. Now they sat under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet unto their taste. Well, that's, that's Parsons' account of the work of the Spirit as he preached the gospel in Lyme. Now, as I said before, this was not an isolated uh, occurrence. It wasn't an anomaly. You, you have similar scenes going on like this all over uh, the colonies, from north all the way down through the south. Uh, In Northampton, Edwards was noting, as as he says here, I'm quoting Edwards, the great stir that was in the land, persons in great agonies with a sense of sin and wrath, some so affected with the greatness and the glory of divine things that they were not able to conceal it. And this is where it gets controversial. 
the affection of their minds overcoming their strength. So you had you had a great amount of of, of physical of of outward expression that was that was not anything that people had been used to seeing. And so the great question was, well, what do we do about this? What what is the true? What is the false? Because uh, well, for obvious reasons, we'll we'll get to this in just a few minutes. His own wife, Sarah, Sarah Edwards, says, says this, and again, this is very truncated here. Christ appeared to me as a mighty Savior, taking my heart with all its corruptions under His care and putting it at His feet. This is just evangelical experience. It really is. This, is not, this should not be extraordinary for us to hear. Taking my heart. I just love this, this statement. Taking my heart, Jesus Himself, with all its corruptions, under His care and putting it at His feet, I was overcome by the sweetness of this assurance and could not forbear weeping aloud. This was, in fact, after she had heard a sermon out of Romans chapter 8. Uh, and after the sermon, she said, I just had this strong urge to, to be alone because she felt this overwhelming sense of God's love and she didn't want to be there in public. And so she returned, retired to her own room and there just burst forth. And uh, it's, it's just a tremendous thing. Well, Edwards had been observing all of these things very closely, taking notes on them. He says, I, I observe these things in their beginning, their progress, their issue, and their consequences. So he's becoming something of a, of a theologian of awakening at this point. Undoubtedly, he said, there were imprudences, there were irregularities, as there always will be in this imperfect state. But nonetheless, he says, there were clear evidences of a true divine work. If this be not the work of God, I have all my religion to learn over again. I know not what use to make of the Bible. A very emphatic statement by Edwards. Well, not everyone concurred with him. There were the old lights, the old side, the new side. That's in the Presbyterian uh, communion. Among the Congregationalists, they were called old lights and new lights. So the old and the new is consistent here. Uh, but in one case, they're side, and the other, they're light. So there was an old light uh, minister who was the rector of Yale at this time. And this was Thomas Clapp. Thomas Clapp, the rector of Yale, which was in New Haven, which we remember both Whitfield and Tennant had come and preached at and caused quite a stir. Well... Now, among the old lights, there were Arminian old lights, many of whom were not converted at all. But there were also good, solid, conservative Calvinist old lights. This was Clapp. Clapp was not an Arminian. He was a Calvinist. Uh, he, was, he was orthodox on the doctrines of grace. But he had a very conservative bent to him. And he did not see uh, things that he liked going on with all of the commotion. So he disagreed with Edwards on, on, on this point. Although he loved Edwards, and we'll see, we'll see in a minute, there a, a little bit of interaction. Well, as I said, Whitfield preached here at Yale. Uh, that's when Parsons, in fact, came and heard him preach and was revived. And then Tennant came the following spring. Uh, and so there had spread over the whole student body uh, a general and a great awakening, as it was reported at the time. Uh, but with it came what Edwards called these imprudences and irregularities, particularly among the young men, you know, the student body. And this is typical in every generation. The, the real earnest, intense, sometimes over the top in their zeal are the, the young men oftentimes. Well, this was the case here at Yale. 
students were beginning to denounce ministers as unconverted. Even some of the faculty, they were saying they were unconverted. This was due in part to tenants' influence, you remember, but very much more due to the influence of another man who looms very large in the Great Awakening, particularly in its waning phase, and that is James Davenport. James Davenport, uh, we have to say some things about James Davenport because... uh, he, his influence was largely responsible for, for the, um, the downgrade and the waning of the influence of the Spirit in what we call the Great Awakening. Tracy, Joseph Tracy, says this of Davenport, he embodied in himself all the unsafe extravagances into which the revival was running. His influence mainly brought it to a crisis and provoked the opposition which brought it to an end. That's a, that's a significant statement. And it makes Davenport a a significant figure, along with Edwards and Whitfield and Tennant and others, makes him a significant figure in the Great Awakening. Well, he had been pastor of a congregational church in Long Island, South Old Long Island, and he became an itinerant minister, mainly in an attempt to to kind of follow in the footsteps of Whitfield and Tennant, who he was greatly influenced by. He wanted to be just like them. And so he went about and became, he left his church, became an itinerant, minister. He traveled for a time with Whitfield. Whitfield, in fact, said of the younger Davenport that he never knew so one who kept so close a walk with God. So Whitfield himself had a high estimation of Davenport. Davenport himself, in his own diary, says this, I find need of continual supplies of grace and strength from above that I may maintain a close walk with God and do no hurt to religion or to my own soul. Well, that is in fact what he did end up doing, hurt to his own soul and hurt to the cause of the faith of Christ. He did great harm to it. But you see the sincerity and this earnestness here. And after all is said and done, the general tenor of judgment as it involves Davenport is that he he genuinely was a Christian man, but he was carried away with these excesses, with these irregularities and imprudences. And he, he himself comes to make confession later on. Uh, mellows out quite a bit but, but he, he was the extravagant one and offended many and as Tracy said was really the cause of the, the uh, really the spirit's removing of his influence because of all of the contention that sprung up over uh, the irregularities that, that Davenport nourished well as evangelical and sincere as he was He was strongly inclined to the leading of impulses, much more than Whitfield was, much, much more, and took them much farther. Uh, He wasn't shy in denouncing ministers, even from their own pulpits. And he actually did this in New Haven. So now we come to New Haven uh, and Yale in September of 1741. It was commencement week at Yale. Uh, Davenport had been invited by the minister of the university church there. All the students were required to attend in this church. And so here are these, all these young men on fire, and here comes Davenport into the pulpit, and he promptly denounced the minister that invited him there as a wolf in sheep's clothing. I mean, incredible, incredible uh, gall. And he encouraged the students to, to leave and form a pure congregation. Well, that's what they did. And here's a, here's a contemporary description of their late night meetings. They would meet late at night. Some were praying, some exhorting and terrifying, some singing, some screaming, some crying, some laughing, some scolding, 
which made the most amazing confusion that ever was heard. So, uh, I mean, we can go to churches this morning and see the same thing. Uh, It's not limited to this period of time. It's just this charismatic impulse, this desire for an intense experience with God that uh, disattaches itself from the ground of the good order in the Word of God. We don't reject it all as, as being only the product of unconverted souls. We don't. Many are unconverted, but not all. And it's a dangerous thing to say that they all are just outside of the camp of the church. Uh, again, in many cases, that is the case. But in not every case. This is where Edwards brings the balance for us. Well, Clapp had enough. Rector Clapp. This had gone way overboard. And so he laid down this rule. If any student of this college shall say that the rector, the trustees, or the tutors are hypocrites, carnal or unconverted men, he shall for the first offense make public confession and for the second offense be expelled. Well, this is exactly the rule that we'll see next time in three weeks uh, that Brainerd fell victim to. Brainerd himself got caught up uh, in the Davenport excitement and uh, he was found guilty of an offense of calling one of the faculty members uh, unconverted, a graceless soul, in fact. So we'll come to that soon enough, but, we're, but we'll leave that for now. It was in this atmosphere, all riled up with turmoil and controversy, uh, that Commencement Day came. Commencement Day, 1741, September, at Yale College. Well, clap... To give the address, the commencement address, Clapp had invited someone he thought would bring order to the situation. A widely respected leader. He was a new light, but he was a new light that had respect of the old and the new lights together. A staunch champion of good order, and you may have guessed already, it was Jonathan Edwards. So Jonathan Edwards is there for the commencement address, invited by none other than Rector Clapp himself. Edwards stood before the faculty and the student body, and Brainerd was among them. So here's Brainerd's first taste of hearing the theology and the preaching uh, of Jonathan Edwards. The stated subject of the address was the distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God applied to that uncommon operation that has lately appeared on the minds of many of the people of New England. That's the whole title. Long title. Uh, It generally goes by the distinguishing marks. The distinguishing marks. And this, in fact... He worked into a longer treatise that was published the next year. This was in 1741, and it was published, and you can get it today, The Distinguishing Marks. Uh, I I, I do not not recommend it, because we're going to talk about it right now, but I recommend even more what he produced the next year, uh, some thoughts on the present revival of religion, which was greatly expanded from this, and has what, what I think are just profound insights, three of which, in small form, are in your handout this morning from that 1742 work. But the distinguishing marks uh, was the stated subject here. So he began, in the apostolic age, Edward says, there was the greatest outpouring of the Spirit of God that ever was. But as the influences of the true Spirit abounded, so also did counterfeits. So he's going right back to the Scriptures. And this, that is the counterfeits, this made it necessary that the church should be furnished with some certain rules, distinguishing marks by which she might proceed safely in judging the true from the false. So the the perfect subject for exactly this time. 
he took for his text, in which he found some certain rules, First uh, John chapter 4, which begins, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. So he's, he's, he's going to show some positive signs by which you can look and, and look at the phenomena that's going on and have some sense and rule of what is and what is not the work of the Spirit of God. But first, as was the case often with Edwards, he looks at the negative. What are some signs that you see that aren't an indication one way or the other? They're really indifferent signs. And yet, oftentimes we're stumbled into believing it's not a work of God because we see this going on. Edwards is going to say, no, there's irregularities, there are imprudences. Doesn't mean it's not a work of the Spirit of God. It means that fallible human beings are the subjects of the work of God. So, in the first place, and I'm only going to mention two, he, he, he made nine. He gave nine signs by which, which are no signs one way or the other. First, a work is not to be judged one way or the other by any effects on the bodies of men, such as tears, tremblings, groans, loud outcries. You don't make a judgment based on this, not a dogmatic judgment. Because in Scripture, well, scripture, scripture doesn't lay this down as a rule. In fact, you have both in the Scripture. You have, you have the tears and the outcries and the groanings of someone like Saul. It's false repentance. There it is. But you also have the true groaning and cries and outcries of Peter when he denied the Lord. Went out and wept bitterly. So you have this emotional outflow of a full heart in either case. So Edward says, this is not the way to judge. He says, we must consider the weight of divine wrath. If a person should have a clear apprehension, it would be more than his feeble frame could bear. If we consider human nature, we must not wonder that the wrath of God, when it's manifested but a little bit to the soul, overbears human strength. Well, this is exactly what had been happening, what, we, what we've seen a, a number of instances of. This sense of the wrath of God overbearing the soul. And then on the other side, he says that it, we shouldn't think it strange if God should sometime give his saints such a foretaste of heaven, namely of the glory of the Lamb that was slain. When the Spirit gives a sense of this, however small it may be, it can often overbear a saint and diminish his bodily strength, says Edwards. So, that was sign number one. Sign number two, it is no sign or I should say non-sign number two, it is no sign that a work is not from the Spirit of God that many are guilty of great imprudences. There are but few, he says, who know how to conduct themselves under vehement affections. Therefore, a thousand imprudences will not prove a work to be not of the Spirit of God. A thousand imprudences will not prove that it's not a work of the Spirit. Fallen human nature, he said, is... is, is woven inseparably into the human condition, into all that God does in the world. Whitfield himself said this, Alas, I must be very severe against myself, this is Whitfield speaking, who by imprudences mixed with my zeal have dishonored the cause of Christ. Well, Edwards now comes, and this is greatly abridged, uh, to the positive signs. How we can be sure it is a true work of the Spirit of God. First of all, he says, when it, and these are not all the points either. Uh, I'm going to give you four. It raises the soul's estimate of Jesus Christ. Rule number one. It ra a work of the Spirit of God raises the soul's estimate of Jesus Christ. That is, if the Spirit at work among a people convinces them of Christ and leads them to Him, 
that is a mark of the work of the Spirit of God who was sent to glorify Christ. The devil, says Edwards, has the most implacable enmity against Christ, especially as he is the Savior of men. He would never go about to beget in men more honorable thoughts of Jesus Christ. Satan wouldn't do this. Number two, a work of the Spirit of God sets the mind in a man against sin and draws his heart off from the world. It is not, says Edwards, to be supposed that Satan awakens the conscience and convinces of sin. No, if persons are made sensible of the dreadful nature of sin and at the displeasure of God against it, then we may certainly conclude that it is from the Spirit of God. This is the work, this is the commission that the Holy Spirit has from the exalted Christ Himself to convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Number three, a work of the Spirit of God, or I should say, he, He's saying, this is what the Spirit does. The Spirit inclines the will of a man and the mind of a man to seek direction at the mouth of God. That is, the Holy Spirit creates in the soul a high regard to the Holy Scripture, to the Word of God. He's glued inseparably to the Word of Christ. The devil, says Edwards, would never beget a regard to that divine Word that God has given to His church for all ages. Every text torments Him. He hates every word that is the devil. We may be sure that He will never raise a person's esteem of it. And then fourth, he says it begets, the work of the Spirit begets in men a supernatural love to God and to man. A supernatural love. That's what Edwards is all about. It's supernatural love. Begotten in the heart by the Spirit of God. You can't read very far in any of his works when you don't find this mentioned in one way or another. He says this love, it's not natural. It springs solely from an apprehension of God's free and sovereign love to us in Christ Jesus. Well, this is what Parsons had just experienced, you remember, uh, as he was leaving his study that morning an apprehension of God's free and sovereign love to us in Christ Jesus. This is, this is a revelation that the Spirit gives. And therefore, in every case, this kind of supernatural love is attended on our part with a renunciation of all our own excellency and righteousness. In other words, humility. It strikes humility deep into the heart. And for Edwards, humility was the crown of all the Christian virtues. It's what defines a Christian. Humility. He has so much to say on that. Well, if these marks are evident, and again, severely abridging here, if these marks are evident, Edward says, they plainly show the finger of God and are sufficient to outweigh a thousand objections from errors in conduct and the delusions and the scandals of some professors. If men wait to see a work of God without stumbling blocks, it will be like the fools waiting at the riverside to have all the water run by. A work of God without stumbling blocks is never to be expected. Never, never, never. And if you look at the stumbling blocks and say that's the essence, then you're bound to condemn it every time. Well, Edwards concludes, in all of this, he's largely addressing the faculty and Rector Clapp, but then he turns to the the zealots among them. And he gives them this exhortation. When we have great discoveries of God made to our souls, we should not be bright in our own eyes. Let none think themselves out of danger. Pride is the worst viper of the human heart. It is the most secret, the most unsearchable of any lust whatsoever, ready to mix with everything good. There is no one sin 
that so exposes the saints to Satan's delusion is this, especially after some eminent experience with God. That is just such profound counsel. I, I just I could probably sit and, and read and think about this for well for a long time. It's it's so profound. It's great advice for every Christian, but it really captured what was going on with Davenport. I mean, it described Davenport's case exactly. Exposed to to Satan's delusions after some eminent experience with God. So Davenport, and we'll close just with, with, and and again, this is severely truncated here. Uh, Davenport left New Haven after this. He made his way for Boston, uh, presumably to kind of follow in the footsteps of Whitfield and then Tennant after him. He was kind of setting himself up to be like the third great man in the Great Awakening. Uh, the pastors all came together in Boston and had an interview with him uh, to see what they thought about things. They decided to, to forbid him, to bar him from their pulpits. You cannot preach in our pulpits. And so he promptly left the meeting. He went out to Boston Commons and he denounced them all. And the Evening Post, the Evening Post in Boston had this to say, Were you to see him in his most violent agitations, you would think he was a madman, just broke from his chains with large mobs at his heels, singing all the way through the streets with so much disorder that they looked more like a mad frolic than sober Christians who had been worshiping God. Well, Davenport was, was arraigned. He was arrested, thrown in prison for disturbing the peace. But then at his trial, he was, he was judged not guilty by reason of non compus mentis, that is, insanity, an unsound mind. So they let him go. He went on, and we're not going to get into the shenanigans that went on after this. He was burning books of the Puritans, Flavel, uh, even Parsons. Uh, but eventually, he broke down, and things settled down. After he disappeared from the scene, things settled down. Uh, and Davenport himself published a confession, his retractations, as he called them. I was, he says, to my shame, full of impatience pride and arrogance, although I thought at the time it was the Spirit of God in a high degree. Well, that was just briefly. There's much more to his confession. Another part of it is in the handout this morning. But the damage had been done. I mean, things settled down. The damage had been done. The Spirit had been quenched because of all the disputation that arose because of it. The Davenport affair, Thomas Prince says, the pastor of Old South Church in Boston, The Davenport affair not only seemed to put an awful stop to the awakenings, but on all sides to roil our passions. And now a disputatious spirit most grievously prevailed among us. And the Holy Spirit in a gradual and dreadful measure withdrew his influence. It was indeed a lamentable time. Well, it almost makes you want to cry reading that when you think of all the glory that was going on. Well, that's it. The the, the Great Awakening was on the decline very quickly by 1744. Uh, We'll end there. We'll pick up in three weeks. In the meantime, in the interlude, two weeks, we'll have the video uh, teachings by Ligonier on Providence. So let's close in prayer. Keep us, O Lord, in your bosom through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be with us. Attend our worship, our singing, the preaching that is preached, and as we hear it, And be with us, Lord Jesus, in your supper, as you promised. And fill us with fear and trembling and awe at your majesty and your all-sufficiency for your saints, for your church, until you bring us home safely. In your great name we pray. Amen.